KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, the royal family and the crown. You know, Queen Elizabeth and Charles and Diana and the Netflix series about them. Gary Young will explain why he loathes the monarchy in Britain, but loved the crown on Netflix. Gary was a columnist for The Guardian. Now he's a professor of sociology at Manchester University. He's also a British citizen with parents from Barbados. Also, should the Supreme Court base its decisions on what it can discern about the original intent of the framers of the Constitution? That's what the originalists say, and they dominate today's court. Erwin Chemerinsky disagrees. He's dean of the law school at UC Berkeley, author of many books, most recently, Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism. But first, it's the middle of Black History Month, and we're still grappling with Ron DeSantis banning the teaching of parts of Black history in Florida public schools. Even worse, the college board is cooperating with Florida in abandoning parts of their Black Studies advanced placement curriculum for high school students everywhere. At the same time, the 1619 Project, launched by the New York Times three years ago, proposing the transformation of the teaching of American history, is now not just a book and a podcast, it's a TV documentary, a six-part series streaming now on Hulu. For all of that, we turn to Robin Kelly, distinguished professor of U.S. history at UCLA. He's the author of many books, including Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, and Thelonious Monk, The Life and Times of an American Original. He's written for the New York Times, the Boston Review, and The Nation, and he was just interviewed by The New Yorker. One more thing, his work has been singled out for attack by the state of Florida. Robin Kelly, welcome back. Thank you so much. I'm very proud of that fact. Okay. Well, on February 1st, the first day of Black History Month, the College Board released its long-awaited curriculum for a new advanced placement class in African American Studies. They had removed from the course everything the Florida Department of Education targeted. One example, the Movement for Black Lives largest demonstrations in American history, summer of 2020. More than 20 million people participated for months everywhere in America. That was excluded as a topic of study. The targets of what Florida officials called, quote, concern, were Kimberly Crenshaw on intersectionality, Angela Davis on activism, Roderick Ferguson on black queer studies, bell hooks on feminism and one more your first book hammer and ho alabama communists during the great depression so we got kim crenshaw angela davis roderick ferguson bell hooks and you you're in very good company but what do you think made these books all a target maybe we should start with yours hammer and ho yeah, well, see, what's interesting is that none of those, well, in terms of my book and some of the other works, like Angela's work, it wasn't even included in the curriculum. That that was just a red-baiting move. In other words, they wanted to let the world know that I wrote a book on the Communist Party, so therefore, ergo, I'm a communist. Despite the fact that state of Florida has had uh, been teaching a course back in, from the 60s all the way up to the 1990s, I think it was, that taught Americanism versus communism. 
what they targeted of mine was an article called Black Study, Black Struggle. Uh, that was the one piece that was part of the original curriculum from February 2022. And what's interesting about that piece, they didn't read it because I was making a case that Black students need to read the Western canon. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's, you know, that you need to read everything and be critical of everything. Uh, but just step back for a minute um, in terms of what the College Board did versus DeSantis. Well, their, their argument is they made the changes independently that they weren't pressured. Um, and they gave all kinds of explanations why they made these changes. And these changes, as you mentioned, was the elimination, not just of Black Lives Matter, but pretty much the whole history of Black movements from the end of 19, from 1970 to the present, replaced with um, a discussion of Black conservatism, uh, the great triumph of Barack Obama, the success of Black conservatives like Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell, and the fact that the Black middle class has succeeded. So this narrative of gradual success, and this is proof of it because of the rise of the Black middle class, replaced what was a really robust uh, discussion of all these movements that took, when we talk about 1970, we're talking about 50 years, yeah. 50 years of history just kind of erased. One step back, we're talking here about the College Board Advanced Placement course in Black Studies. What exactly is this? So the College Board makes its money two ways, through the SAT uh, tests and those kinds of standardized tests and through advanced placement courses. Advanced placement courses are courses for select few high school students who are college bound. And there are two things. One, you take an AP course and you supposedly get some college credit, which allows you to opt out of the course in college. That's already a bad idea. So you're basically yeah. saying that let us do an intro to African-American studies so they don't have to take our intro into African-American studies. The second thing is that uh, the argument is that if you take more AP courses, it makes your application look better. The College Board had decided, and others have agreed, that there are so few uh, Black students who actually take AP courses that they're trying to attract them. And one way to do it is to create a Black Studies or an African-American Studies AP course what that means was up for debate. You know, it's always up for debate. As you know, the U.S. History AP course is still up for debate, still yeah. struggles over that. So yeah. this is not even unique, uh, except for the fact that uh, what is unique is that Black studies, unlike U.S. history, developed in a political context as a political movement. And so you can't sort of pull the politics out of it when in fact it was contested from the very beginning, it contests almost all forms of, of social science and humanistic knowledge. So that's that's what it's for. And I think that there's an argument to be made that maybe we should be rethinking AP courses as a way to introduce and expand a kind of Black studies uh, curriculum to public schools across the nation. And this AP system, could exist at every high school in the United States, and certainly every high school where students are bound for college teaches AP courses. And are those all kind of certified or designed by the College Board? Well, the way it works, they create a kind of course outline, a curricular outline, and they leave it to the discretion of, of teachers to include secondary sources, which is to say all the articles and books. That's what, they, that's what they're arguing. In this initial um, curriculum uh, that has been around for like a year or so, um, they had secondary sources. It's impossible really to teach a course that's interdisciplinary 
that cuts across, you know, from literature, sociology, economics, history, and not have secondary sources. So what they did was they took out, they took out what they felt was the offending articles and material. Uh, yes, in response to, to DeSantis. So they they say it's not, but let's say they did. Let's um, say they did. Let's say, let's say they did. I mean, that's that's the truth. But you know what? If it wasn't Florida, it could have been any state. Yeah. Um, so to go back to to the choices, they're saying that they're trying to keep this course in line with other AP courses, which is to say creating a kind of database or a source of secondary sources that could draw on. But here's the most problematic aspect of this all of this whole thing. The College Board is a 501c3 that supposed to be a not-for-profit, but it is a billion-dollar-a-year industry. And they're losing, they're about to lose money on the SAT because universities like mine and the one that you were associated with, the University of California, they're eliminating SATs as admissions. So once you lose the bread and butter of SATs, all you have left in some ways are AP courses. So what's, what does the board do? They're trying to make sure that 50 states accept these courses. And right now, there are 60 pilot courses testing this new curriculum right now. And we don't even have the data on whether it's working or not working. Uh, but the College Board is claiming that the, the pilot courses are giving them the data to, to tell them that these things don't really belong. And, and the data is telling us that, not Florida. Uh, That's what they're saying. Just one personal note here. Your book, Hammer and Ho, named on the list of the Florida subjects of concern, <laughs> happens to be the first book I ever reviewed for The Nation magazine, like 30 years ago. <laughs> I, I looked up my review. I called it a fascinating and indispensable contribution to the history of American radicalism and to Black history. You were the first reviewer to review the book in any major publication. Huh. Even the right-wing anti-communist historians have actually considered that book a legitimate book. And it's not just my book, it's it's all of our scholarship. In other words, we're scholars being judged by bureaucrats who work for Ron DeSantis, whose task is to politicize education. That's what they're trying to do. So the content of the course, you've said the course that they recommend is about Black achievement, Barack Obama, Colin Powell. What is the difference between that kind of recommended Black Studies course is defined by Florida and apparently the College Board and the way you and your colleagues teach Black Studies? Let me say two things about that. Even though I'm a historian, uh, Black Studies is an interdisciplinary project. I don't subscribe to the idea of teaching the true history. Um, it's not about true history, it's about interrogation. It's constant interrogation of the structures of race, of what is it that creates um, the conditions of premature death and vulnerability to that and inequality. But it's also about how uh, movements and people kind of fight back to try to make a new future, right? There's that. But the other thing is that it's also a way for students to learn how to think across disciplines. What does literature tell us about the consciousness of America or race? How do we understand gender and sexuality, for example, as a way to structure difference and inequality 
or even possibility and power. I mean, all these things are part of what, what constitutes Black studies. You know, on the other hand, just in, in defense of certain aspects of the curriculum, if you take the whole thing as a whole, um, you know, and there were a lot of really amazing people who worked on this. There's some aspects of it that I think are still very, very important and interesting in terms of a history course. They deal, they try to deal with reconstruction. They try to deal with, with slavery in ways, maybe not ways I would deal with it, but any field is always fraught with, uh, with debate and, and difference. And if it's not, then it's not intellectual. You know? And what I think is really disturbing is the way that the, the Florida Department of Education would frame some of this work as historical mythology, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that is, has no educational value. And educational value for people who have actually risked their lives just to teach, just to learn, you know. And then the final thing that somehow uh, because of the political context in which Black studies emerge, that there would be no debate, that somehow this is indoctrination. Indoctrination is when you ban books. Indoctrination is when you say that there's certain things that you're not allowed to talk about. There's no way that anyone in the classroom could talk about, say, the Black Panther Party without talking about J. Edgar Hoover and the state, without talking about, you know, you can talk about reconstruction without understanding what are the conditions that overthrew it. What, you know, you're you're debating all the time. You can't talk about reparations, for example, unless we actually understand how value was extracted and who was opposed to reparations, even within Black communities. So debate is built in. That's the point. Um, and what the Florida what Florida wants to do is eliminate debate. The other thing Florida wants to do is emphasize the positive, make black students feel good about their people, their history, their own lives. What, what do you think of that approach? Yeah, well, that's a very old approach as well that comes from uh, in a segment of black studies itself. There's a long, long tradition of African-American leaderships and, and elites who say, you know, we don't need the trauma of having to deal with the violence and exploitation. We want to feel pride. And I understand that. It doesn't advance democracy. It doesn't advance our ability to think critically. And that's that's a debate. So I think that even if, even if the state of Florida did not take that position, it would still be there, still be embedded. Um, but it's a lot easier to, to discuss politically, especially within a right-wing context, the success of Black people because it supports the, the myth of the American creed. And the American creed, of course, is that, you know, America was perfect from the beginning, but in all this other stuff are aberrations. So slavery was an aberration, though, and, and the idea is to get back to the creed. Once we get back to the creed, we're on the right track. And proof of the right track is the success of, of Black people. And it doesn't work that way. Florida and and, uh, other Republican states want to ban one thing in particular, the 1619 Project, launched by the New York Times three years ago, shows how slavery arrived in the North American colonies before the Pilgrims, something we've known for quite a while, actually, 150 years before the American Revolution and the ways that slavery and its legacy have shaped all of American history down to the present. It started out as a special issue of the New York Times Magazine, edited by Nicole Hannah-Jones. Then it became a book, a number one bestseller for months. It's still on the bestseller list. 
uh, won a Pulitzer Prize, then came a children's book, then a podcast. Millions of people have been reached by the 1619 Project, and now it's started a new phase, the Hulu miniseries. What did you think of Hulu's 1619 Project six-part series? Well, in terms of the, the Hulu Project, I actually think it is the antidote to uh, the College Board and to Florida and to the 42 states that pass anti-CRT laws. Um, it is one of the best examples of what Black studies is supposed to be. And, you know, as you know, the whole point of it is to argue that slavery was not an aberration, uh, but really foundational to the American Republic. What they end up doing, what Nicole Hannah-Jones ends up doing is taking her personal life story, her family story, and linking it beautifully with the key issues that were in banned in the curriculum. The very first episode, Democracy, Yeah, she goes back to her childhood home and talks to a couple of her uncles about the fact that her father always had an American flag on a flagpole in his front yard. And she being kind of one of us is kind of puzzled and troubled by this. Why would he do this given the history of America and black people? What did you think of that segment? Well, I thought it, it, it made a lot of sense because what she was arguing was that black people weren't simply the victims of a system that was founded on slavery and, and, and dispossession and exploitation, but rather that Black people held the potential to make America democratic. She figured out that it wasn't that he was so patriotic because he loved the country as it was. It was because he and others like him, what they were trying to do was trying to make America what they were told it was supposed to be, but they knew it wasn't. And that changes everything in terms of the narrative. So it's not the creed that's natural that that eventually creates the space for success, but rather that the only reason we have democracy is because of these kinds of struggles. And that's the point, that this constant struggle of people who are dispossessed on the outside, not just Black people, uh, immigrants, women, uh, disabled, Indigenous people, that this constant fight to expand the horizons of democracy, that's what the country's about. So you, you take the, the struggles that are taking place today and then you trace them back. That's what that's what each episode does. But she traces them back again through her family story and through select scholars, you know, being, me being one of them by full disclosure, to talk about uh, capitalism, for example. And that the, the, the episode on capitalism or what I would call racial capitalism is really profound in that so many of these other projects don't always deal with capitalism straight up. The fact that she's dealing with the Amazon strike in Bessemer and linking that back to how they got, what land it's on, the relationship between slave labor, the parallels between picking cotton and moving uh, boxes. It's, it's really quite striking. And if you don't understand why capitalism is fundamental, you will. The irony though, is that all these states from Indiana to Florida are passing legislation that's saying capitalism must be taught. They call it free <laughs> enterprise. It's like we have to teach capitalism, not socialism. Well, of course, well, they're teaching capitalism. <laughs> so be careful what you wish for, you know? Be careful what you wish for. Robin Kelly is a distinguished professor of history at UCLA. You can read him most recently at thenewyorker.com, where he's interviewed by Kiyanga Yamada Taylor 
Robin, thanks for all your work. And thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. It's always a pleasure. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about the royal family and the crown. You know, Queen Elizabeth and Charles and Diana and the Netflix series about them. For that, we turn to Gary Young. He's professor of sociology at the University of Manchester, former columnist for The Guardian, member of the Nation editorial board and a type media fellow. We reached him today at home in London. Gary, welcome back. Thanks, John. You are a British citizen, is that correct? That is very true, yes. So we need to start with the most basic of all British questions. Where were you when Princess Diana died? That's a very, that's a very good question. I was, uh, I was in Barbados, which is where my parents are from, on holiday. I was staying with my uncle, and he woke me up to tell me the news. We, we watched the news for a little bit, went back to bed. Then I went out for a walk later, and I bumped into some Brits. And I said, you know, have you heard the news? And this woman said, I know. I feel really terrible just being out on holiday, enjoying myself. And I thought this was really odd. And I said to her, I'm sure if you died, Lady Di would have no problem being on holiday and going out and enjoying herself. I mean, enjoy your holiday. And she looked at me with a kind of contempt and outrage. And I thought, oh, wow, I really kind of got that wrong, you know. And uh, I wasn't trying to be funny. And it was a, a, a realization, I, I don't get this. This is going to be something more, something other. And then when I occasionally would kind of pass a TV screen or check in with her, I could see over the week, well, that this was a moment of national hysteria maybe even international hysteria, and that uh, I should keep my mouth shut. How would you describe your engagement with the royal family? Would you call it a just a lack of interest? No, it's a very kind of, um, I mean, politically, I'm very clear, it's, it's an awful institution that isn't just benign, because what it does is it puts who your parents are at the top of the British system, the head of state, which is the epitome of class privilege and deeply problematic. And that's before you get to the whole thing about empire and colonialism and what the Brits did in the name of the crown. So on a political level, it's not even a, a question for me. On a human engagement level, I really don't care. When the Queen died, I just didn't watch the news for 10 days. I've got nothing against her as a person. I didn't know her as a person. And that's why it didn't really interest me. Her death didn't particularly interest me any more than somebody else who died that I didn't know. When it comes to matters royal, I take the effort not to care. Okay, you don't care about the royal family. You loathe the institution of the monarchy. How did you feel about the Netflix series, The Crown? I loved it. Awesome. <laughs> I didn't really like the last season I found particularly weak, but the first four, I think, I really enjoyed. 
they acknowledge colonialism as being a significant part of Britain's recent history. Now, that may seem like a no-brainer to an American, but Britons have a peculiar way, because particularly because colonialism almost by definition happened elsewhere, of not knowing where they were or what they did. So let's talk a little bit just about the facts of empire during the decades covered by the Netflix series. I learned from your piece in The Nation that in 1955, Winston Churchill suggested to his cabinet that the Conservative Party should run on the slogan, Keep England White. Let's talk about that. Yeah, you're going to love him for that. (laughs) So what had happened by 1955 was the empire was striking back. The empire was coming to the mother country. Uh, I mean, my parents didn't come till 62. In the same way that if you are uh, born in Hawaii or the Marianas Islands or whatever, you can have American citizenship or Puerto Rico. If you were born, my parents came to Britain on a British passport. And Churchill thought that there was mileage in opposing these non-white immigrants in, in the 50s. So that gives you a sense of where Britain was racially at that time. But these were all British citizens. So would you call the Netflix show a critique of empire? No, no, it doesn't. It just shows that it had, I mean, the bar is very low just to depict it and to give a sense of the power dynamics and how they played out is enough when you're used to it just not being dealt with at all. Let's talk, for example, about the young queen's trip to Kenya in the early 50s. Right. So she goes to Kenya. She's still the princess then, I think. So dad dies while she's there. Yeah. She arrives. She gives this talk. The young queen or the young princess talks about, you know, Nairobi, the capital of Kenya, having been this savage place that was now civilized. They then walk the line of dignitaries. And there are some uh, indigenous African uh, dignitaries who Prince Philip insults. And then the local governor, I assume it's the local governor, says to her something to the effect of, look, we're really struggling to hold on here. The winds of change are blowing through this continent. So thank you for for coming. And the the whole scene of the, the, the welcoming band and the local dignitaries and the local kind of colonial people, notwithstanding ethnic dress, and that's all the ethnicities, including the Brits, it could have been the South mm-hmm. at the same time. Uh, it's segregated. The power relations are clear. There's perhaps a, a little bit more of a sense of benevolence and patronizing than you, you would have got in the South. But still, that very parochial sense where the racial power lines are very clear. And then there's that fascinating episode about the royal tour of 1953, where Elizabeth and Philip travel to the Commonwealth countries. And Philip says, quote, 20 years ago, Britain had influence and control over one fifth of the world's population. Look where we are now in India, Pakistan, South Africa, Iraq, Jordan, Burma, Salon, all independent and he says, we've been sent on the Commonwealth Roadshow, but it's like a rusty old banger where the rust has eaten away the engine. Quite a vivid image of what was actually happening. Yeah. And once again, it's a depiction. It's not a critique. 
of this sense of decline, that it's all moving away from us. You know, when in the Brexit campaign, they talked about putting the great back into Great Britain. Yes. There is this really crippling sense of this kind of, you know, once great nation. And, and, it, and it really did happen relatively quickly. And Britain has failed to adjust. There was a great quote from, um, I think it was a Danish foreign minister shortly after Brexit, and he said, Europe is is divided into small countries and those countries that have yet to realise that they are small. (laughs) And, you know, of course, who was he talking about primarily? But Britain. And then there was one episode that a lot of people didn't really understand. That was the one about the Russian Revolution with these vivid scenes recreating the Bolsheviks murdering the family of the Tsar. What was the point of all that? I couldn't say for sure why they did that one. But what it did do was bring together a theme that was there right from the beginning, which is this sense of precarity. It starts with the abdication of Edward, who's the Queen's uncle, and this notion that being a member of the royal family is a choice, and he has chosen not to do it. Then you have Prince Philip, whose family were smuggled out of Greece. He says he was taken out in a crate full of oranges or something, not dignified, certainly, struggling for his life. And so throughout, there's this sense of urgency to be relevant to keep up, to televise the Queen's coronation, to find ways to modernise this prehistoric institution. So they don't end up like the Tsar's family. Like the Romanovs, yeah. I mean, they are surrounded by examples of of moments where it didn't go so well. And the (laughs) Romanovs, you know, they, they are able to establish the identity of two of the Romanovs thanks to Prince Philip's DNA. And so you have to imagine, just forget their royals for a moment, and just generational trauma that you have in your in your family, because the Romanos were distant relations of the Queen as well, a range of cousins, second cousins, uncles, who've been killed, deposed, smuggled out, exiled, and that kind of um, and you're sitting on a you're sitting on a pile of gold, <laughs> and kind of everyone can see you on the top of this pile of gold, and lots of people want it. <laughs> so there's a real there's a there's there is this real um, terror would be too strong a word anxiety a sense of fragility yes yeah. and anxiety fragility and anxiety of the institution. Mm. So one of the main themes of the whole five years is, is that it's it's no fun being a royal. They are not happy. You think you'd like to be a prince or a princess? You should no. be glad you're not because <laughs> their lives are miserable. Mm. This was, for me, one of the main enjoyable, really, engaging aspects of this series, which was this struggle between the structural and the personal. The personal, let's say we take the queen's sister wants to marry a man who's been divorced and she can't. And the queen says, you know, as as your sister, I want you to marry him. As your queen, I forbid it. When Philip says, well, do I have to kneel in front of you at the coronation, which he considers demeaning? And she says, I'm not asking as your wife. I'm commanding you as your monarch. There's a moment where a village in Wales is crushed by a landslide and all of the children uh, in the school, particularly one class, are all killed. 
and the Prime Minister, Howard Wilson, is beseeching her to go up. And the Queen's like, I don't want to go up there. Like, there's no point in me going up there. I'm not going to help. And he's basically saying, people need to see that you care. And she's not saying she doesn't care. She's just saying, I can't perform caring. Mm. She talks about coming back and having dabbed a dry eye. Mm. You know, she kind of got away with it. And actually, that was precisely the problem that she had with Lady Diana, where it's like, I'm sorry, but you're a national symbol, and we want you out here blubbing your eyes out and being really sad. And unless we see you being really sad, we're going to turn on you because (laughs) your job is not to be yourself, but to represent a nation and its mood. That's the element of the crown that I really love which is why I found the last season more disappointing or just less interesting because Charles really isn't grappling with any of that stuff. He's like, I want my mistress. I want my wife. I want to be king. And anybody who thinks that I shouldn't be having all of those three things at once is just being unfair. So it's <laughs> like a big, big baby, really. And um, that's not so interesting to watch. Season five, you will recall, premiered just two months after Elizabeth died and Charles mm-hmm. became king. That 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 season seemed eager to make Charles look good. There was that scene of him breakdancing during his visit to an event I I learned was called Youth Meets Industry, where 300 unemployed young people were organized by a charity called the Prince's Trust. How did you like that episode? Well, you know, I do remember that. I remember that. And I remember him being kind of keen in a kind of daddy in a paddling pool kind of way to want to identify with the country that was changing somehow. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't particularly interested because I go back to my original point. You're a tough, you're the prince, <laughs> like, you know, America, Russia, France all had the right idea. But I do remember it being more interesting than the horse riding and the polo stuff. (laughs) You know, I remember my mum liked him because he liked the three degrees and he invited (laughs) them to a gala performance. And this is a time when you didn't see many black people on television. And these are the scraps that people eat from the table, really. (laughs) So, but the truth was for all of that, they did show him to be a kind of venal man, baby. Uh, after the Queen died, two former prime ministers condemned the series. John Major and Tony Blair, one Tory, one Labour leader, and Judy Dench, the legendary actor, wrote a letter to the London Times describing the series as, quote, an inaccurate and hurtful account of history. She demanded that Netflix add a disclaimer to the last season, quote, for the sake of the family and a nation so recently bereaved, close quote. I wonder if you have any comment. I mean, how crazy. I mean, it was not a documentary. I felt fairly clear that there were, there were elements that you knew were real. The landslide in Aberfan that I just talked about, the strikes, the Falklands War. There was stuff that was real. Even if you hadn't heard of them, you could kind of spend quite a lot of time on Wikipedia after some of them thinking, did that really happen? (laughs) And then there was stuff that you knew was drama. 
the conversations that they had and the kind of personal interactions and so on. And you thought, well, it's a drama. It's a drama based on people who actually exist, but it's a drama. And then there was there were a few things that could have gone either way, but I didn't really care. I mean, I don't watch Netflix for my history. You know, there are books for that. But it had landed at this particular moment when reverence was off the charts. And, and you know, some of Charles's life has been kind of quite embarrassing. Some of the stuff that he did, that was brought up again. So, yeah, the kind of elements of the ruling class kind of whipped into line to make out like, you know, this was a Seymour Hirsch article that had, <laughs> you know, trashed a military operation or something. It was, it was really quite odd. Gary Young, his piece on the British royal family has the wonderful title, Heavy is the Head, The Strange Thrills of the Crown. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Gary. Thanks, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The job of the Supreme Court is to decide whether laws and court decisions are consistent with the principles of the Constitution. Should they decide that on the basis of the original intent of the framers? Or should they regard the Constitution as a living document that has evolved in response to changes in society and in our understanding of the world? Today, three Supreme Court justices are originalists, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett, and three others often couch their arguments in originalist terms, John Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh, and Samuel Alito. For comment, we turn to Erwin Chemerinsky. He's Dean of the Law School at UC Berkeley and the author of 15 books. He's also a frequent contributor to the New York Times and the LA Times op-ed pages. His new book is Worse Than Nothing, the Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism. Erwin Chemerinsky, welcome back. Great to talk with you, John. Well, the originalists say their method is neutral and objective, but their rulings almost always seem to support Republican political positions. Why is that? There is no neutral or objective way to interpret the Constitution. The Constitution was intentionally written in very broad, open-ended language. And how justices read it is a function of their values. Besides, no right is absolute, and what constitutes a sufficiently compelling or important or legitimate interest is all about the values of the justices. Think about June of 2022. The Supreme Court found no abortion rights exist under the Constitution, that a high school football coach has a right to pray on the field, that the government is required in certain circumstances to subsidize religious schools and very expansive gun rights. Unless you believe that the framers in 1791 had the same views as the current Republican platform, it's clear what's going on. Well, of course, the originalists are, are certainly right on some things. For instance, there is nothing in the Constitution that says women have a right to abortion. Nothing in the Constitution says anything about women. The word women doesn't appear in the Constitution. So, the original intent of the men who wrote the Constitution was clearly not to protect women's right to abortion. That seems undeniable. In fact, 
Justice Scalia frequently said that the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, doesn't protect women from discrimination at all. It was only meant to stop race discrimination. That, to me, shows the absurdity of originalism. Throughout American history, the Supreme Court has rejected originalism. The court has protected its rights, the right to marry, the right to procreate, the right to custody of one's children, the right to keep the family together, the right of parents to control the upbringing of their children, the right to purchase new contraceptives, the right to engage in private, consensual adult, same-sex sex activity, the right of competent adults to refuse medical care. None of those are in the text. None of those were intended by the framers either. If the court's going to overrule all of them, it's truly a radical reformation of constitutional law. Well, there is also something true about the argument that if you think something is missing from the Constitution or wrong in the Constitution, you can amend the Constitution. The Founding Fathers made that explicit. They didn't claim this was perfect for all time. They said, you can, you can change this if you want. And when it came to slavery, that's exactly what happened. The Founding Fathers didn't do anything about banning slavery, but after the Civil War, the Constitution was amended to prohibit slavery. So if you think abortion rights belong in the Constitution, go ahead and amend it. Amending the Constitution takes vote of two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-quarters of the states. The Constitution was amended only 17 times since 1791, and two of those involved imposing and then repealing prohibition. More important, what we're talking about here is the rights of minorities in society. And the rights of minorities shouldn't have to depend on a supermajority to protect it. Let me give you an example I discuss in the book. The same Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment also voted to segregate the District of Columbia public schools. There's no indication that Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment was trying to outlaw segregation. Therefore, Brown versus Board of Education was wrong. And by what you were just saying, under that view, the only way to outlaw segregation would be to pass a constitutional amendment. It never was going to happen. The rights of the minority should not depend on needing a supermajority to accomplish it. We've said that the Founding Fathers wrote broad principles, but in some cases, the original intent is pretty narrow and specific and clearly stated. For instance, the Second Amendment, the first words, this is the one about gun rights, the first words indicate that this is about a well-regulated militia. Some of the Founding Fathers wanted states to have strong militias to counter the National Army which they saw as potentially an instrument of tyranny. So the Constitution says the national government can't prevent states from organizing and arming militias. You can find out all about this if you read the 18th century arguments about standing armies and citizen militias. It's not about individual people carrying guns around. Here the intent is perfectly clear, or at least it seems so to me. I think, as with anything, you can read intent either way. I think there's a strong argument, as you say, based on the text of the Second Amendment, that it's a right to have guns for militia service, and that's it. On the other hand, Justice Scalia made a strong argument in District of Columbia versus Heller that the Second Amendment was also about a right of people to have guns in their home for the sake of security. Justice Stevens made a strong argument in dissent that the Second Amendment is just about a right to have guns for militia service. The point that I'm trying to make is it's not like history is clear or that there's a single answer to be found from history. 
it's always much messier than that. There are people historically who expressed varying views. There were differing practices in the country at the time. So what you find is that justice or originalists are looking back at the historical record and picking the examples that support the position they want to come to and ignoring the rest. That's why the conservative justice using originalism magically always come to very conservative results. So their idea is we should study and learn the original intent of the founders. Uh, how do you do that exactly? Well, that assumes there was an original intent of the founder. In reality, there's so many people who participated at the Constitutional Convention and the state ratifying conventions with so many different views that there's not an intent to be found. It also begs the question, even if somehow we could bring James Madison and those who were at the Constitutional Convention back to life, what relevance would their views have today? They lived in such a radically different world in 1787 than ours of 2022. Why should we want to be bound by their conceptions? I noticed that Clarence Thomas argues that the original meaning of the Establishment Clause, prohibiting the establishment of an official religion, applies only to the federal government, and that it leaves states free to fund specific religious denominations, or even to declare that a state has an official religion. But none of the other people who call themselves originalists agree with him about that. So how do we decide who's right? Yes, that is Clarence Thomas's position that he's stated many times that the prohibition of establishment of religion only was meant to keep Congress from creating a national church. It doesn't create an individual right. Under the Thomas view, a state could articulate and establish an official state religion. A state could compel religious behavior. A state could fully subsidize churches, and the Constitution wouldn't limit it. Thankfully, no other justice has been willing to go along with that position. Justice Scalia called himself a, quote, faint-hearted originalist. He wasn't willing always to go as far as where the original intent might have taken the Supreme Court. My guess on this, the other justices or originalists are thankfully also being faint-hearted. <laughs> well, they were perfectly clear about some things. Two senators for each state, four years for the president. Then there are the things that are not so clear, like the 14th Amendment that guarantees equal protection of the laws. They don't say what that includes. Could it be that they left it open on purpose, that their original intent was to leave it to us to decide how it should be understood? I think there's overwhelming evidence that's exactly what the framers did. They left things open for the future. Chief Justice John Marshall, who was one of the framers at the Constitutional Convention, said, we must never forget that it's a constitution we're expounding. Constitution meant to be adapted and endure for ages to come. I think there's strong evidence that the framers wanted the Constitution to take on meaning over time. They didn't want interpretation of the future to be governed by their views. It also is a very elegant argument against originalism, because if you follow what I just said, then if one was an originalist and wanted to follow the framers' intent, one has to abandon originalism because they never wanted it. I like that argument. <laughs> The um, Equal Protection Clause was cited just recently in the argument before the court about affirmative action at colleges and universities. The plaintiffs say affirmative action violates the 14th Amendment guarantee of equal protection. 
Tell us about that uh, that argument that's currently being taken up by the justices where we're waiting for their decision. The Supreme Court in 1978, in 2003, and in 2016 said that college universities have a compelling interest in a diverse student body. College universities can use race as one factor in admission decisions to benefit minorities and enhance diversity. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments in two cases on October 31st is where they'll overrule those prior decisions and eliminate affirmative action by college universities. Ironically here, the original intent of the 14th Amendment strongly supports affirmative action. The same Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment created many programs like the Freedmen's Bureau that were race conscious. And it's interesting when the originalist justices, Scalia and Thomas, dissent in those earlier cases, they never mention that original intent. And my guess is we're going to see the same thing here. The six conservative justices overruling precedent, eliminating affirmative action, and paying no attention at all to the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. Erwin Chemerinsky, his new book is Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism. Erwin, thanks for this book. And thanks for talking with us today. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.